Thanks, Mike. Good morning, everyone. Thank you all again for having me. Uh, It's always a joy to be here. And uh, as we open God's Word, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings will be in chapter 21 this morning. We'll be reading uh, the entire chapter of uh, 21, so it'll be a little bit longer, but bear with me. So 1 Kings 21, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down in his bed and he turned away his face and he would not eat food. But Jezebel, his wife, came uh, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed uh, that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite. And said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she, went, uh, and she sent the letters to the elders and to the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let him bring a charge against him, or let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it is written in the letters that she, uh, she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and he was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as, Naboth, or as soon as Ahab had heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose uh, to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. 
Now there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us turn to prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've called us, Lord, and that you speak to us through it. Um, I do ask that by your spirit, Lord, you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. God, that we would hear what you have for us to hear and see, Lord, and that this word would uh, cut deep into our hearts. Um, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, after World War II came to a close, uh, an American soldier by the name of Hiroshi Fujishige returned to his home in Southern California. Uh, He was a farmer by trade, and so when he came back, he had a little bit of uh, money in his pocket, so he decided that he would look for a plot of land to start a farm for uh, him and his family. So after some searching, he found this uh, 58-acre spot right at the end of the 5 Freeway in a a new up-and-coming city called Anaheim. Uh, And so, you know, he bought this land, he started up this farm, and they opened their doors in 1952. Now, the very next year, uh, uh, Hiroshi got an unexpected new neighbor. Uh, Probably you've heard of it. uh, It was a new development called Disneyland. And, you know, as Disney uh, in the 50s began to expand, they started to break ground and build this new uh, uh, amusement park. Uh, Hiroshi's family soon, uh, or Disney rather, found Hiroshi and his family farm much more desirable as the years went by. So uh, year after year, uh, we see Disney, they would continue to make offers on his land to try and buy it up. You know, as you can imagine, that price slowly got higher and higher, and this continued decade after decade. They would continue to make these offers on Hiroshi's land. Uh, I remember even as a kid when I was, you know, going uh, to Disneyland with my family, I remember my mom would always point out this one little spot of land uh, near the Disney you know, complex, and it was this one little strawberry patch, and it just stuck out like a sore thumb. And so this happened for, you know, year after year for over four decades. Disney continued to make these offers on Hiroshi's land. And then finally in the 90s, as you know, his health was beginning to fade, as his, he was getting older, his family was, was kind of growing up and moving on. Finally, uh, his family decided, or him and his family decided to sell the land, and they sold it to, to Disney to the tune of $75 million. <laughs> So, uh, you know, in true Disney fashion, uh, this story for Hiroshi and his family ended with a happily ever after. (laughs) And in our text this morning, you know, we see something similar. We see this farmer with this one small plot of land that he's not willing to give up, this little vineyard. And then we see next to him this kingdom, you know, although it's not a magic kingdom, uh, trying to acquire his lands. You know, and you know, while our uh, story, this introduction story, ends on a high note, uh, our story, our text this morning in Scripture, ends not in uh, happiness and joy for, his, for a family, but in tragedy and in injustice. And so I want to consider our text this morning under three headings. So I want to look at first, justice perverted, uh, justice pronounced, and then finally, justice postponed. So our first heading this morning, justice perverted. And so we see at the beginning of this story, we're introduced uh, to Ahab, who, you know, he's been uh, 
coming up in the last few chapters of 1 Kings. And uh, we know that Ahab was the uh, king at this time of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in this chapter, as he's you know, going to his palatial estate in the city of Jezreel, he decides he wants to begin this uh, remodeling project. He wants to add some land uh, to his estate. He wants to build a vegetable patch. And this term vegetable patch, it probably has some connotation of something like a royal uh, garden. It was common for kings and for rulers in that day. You know, they have their estate and they would build this, you know, this expansive palatial garden that they could show off to people, to foreign dignitaries who would come by. And so um, it seems that Ahab wanted to make a property that was fit for a king that he could show off to the nations around him. And so he sees this, you know, this beautiful plot of land right next to him. It seems like a no-brainer. He goes out to buy it. But the only problem we see in the text is that the owner of this land is a man named Naboth, the Jezreelite. So you know, Ahab goes to, to Naboth. He attempts to make an offer on the land. You know, he gets a, it seems like it's a pretty fair offer. He says, I'll give you money for it, or I'll give you an even better plot of land for it. And then you know, surprisingly, at least uh, to Ahab, Naboth review, uh, refuses his offer. So we might wonder, you know, is he just being stubborn, right? Is he just waiting for Ahab to maybe up the offer a little bit, like Hiroshi, waiting for it to finally reach the point where it's worth selling? But Naboth, you know, makes it very clear that he's almost offended, that he's taken aback by this offer from Ahab. You know, in verse 3, he says, The Lord forbid that I should sell the inheritance of my fathers. So we see Naboth's reason, you know, wasn't self-seeking. He wasn't just trying to, you know, work the system. He wasn't trying to be a good uh, haggler. Um, and you know, we see even by his name, it's, you know, it's, maybe you've heard as we were reading over and over, it kept saying Naboth the Jezreelite over and over. You know, it wasn't just redundant, but it's to show that you know, they're in the city of Jezreel, and Naboth is a Jezreelite. He has been living in this land. His family is from this land. This is his ancestral property. And so Naboth, by this statement of, you know, I will not sell the inheritance of my father's Naboth, was showing that he was being faithful to God in particular to this commandment that a tribe was not to uh, sell his land or its uh, land from one tribe into the hands of another. Naboth was showing this commitment to keeping his land. Uh, and it was tied to this promise, you know, even back to Abraham, that God would give his people a land and give them a, a nation, that he was faithful, he was striving to be faithful to this promise. You know, in a sense, Naboth giving up this land would essentially be a betrayal, not just to his family, not just to his ancestors or to his descendants, but it would be a, an act of unfaithfulness to God himself and to his promises. So we see for Naboth, it wasn't you know, uh, an act of, uh, of money, an act of um, being you know, a, a bad barterer, but it was an act of faith, that he wasn't willing to be swayed by matters of money or influence. Naboth was willing to remain faithful to God, even if it meant you know, missing out on a lucrative business deal, uh, or worse, as we see later in this text, even if it meant putting himself at odds with the very king of Israel, even if it meant getting on his bad side. And so facing the king of Israel, Naboth is unflinching. He's not going to sell his land. He's committed to God and to his promises. And then after this scene, you know, Naboth goes away, and we see his you know, almost comical uh, reaction to this. In response to this interaction, where Naboth shows himself to be faithful and upright, he's this you know, model citizen, this person that we should be aspiring to, we see you know, this, uh, this foil in Ahab. He's the complete opposite in his response. You know, he goes away vexed. And Solon, the text says, he goes away, you know, maybe, uh, no offense to anyone, but maybe like a, a teenager who, you know, maybe just got dumped and flops onto their bed, you know, crying into their pillow. Um, and we see that this vexed and sullen attitude is not the first time that Ahab has done this. In the very previous chapter, he gets bad news from a prophet, and it says the same thing. He goes away vexed and sullen. He goes into his pillow, and he cries himself to sleep. And it seems that, you know, this, this default reaction 
that Ahab has, you know, we see it's, it's this, again, this contrast to Naboth, to his upright character. And then to make, to make matters worse, to really make us see that Ahab is not someone that we are to, uh, to you know, take as a hero in this story, we see Je- uh, Jezebel come in and she comforts him. You know, she mockingly even asks him, aren't you the king of Israel? Why are you crying in your bed? Don't you know that you can get anything that you want? And then we can, you know, uh, we, we, we see her almost like a, you know, like a, a mom with her child or, you know, like a, a, an owner of a pet, you know, patting the head of its little, uh, little puppy dog. You know, she says, don't worry, you know, Jezebel is going to take care of this for you. And so with Ahab's full approval, we see that she gives, uh, her, he gives her his signet ring. Um, Jezebel begins to set this scheme in motion to get her poor little Ahab the exact piece of land that he desires. So, you know, we see she sets up this phony fast. She puts Naboth at the head of it. She uh, orchestrates everything. She sets up these two false witnesses to make accusations against him, saying that uh, Naboth blasphemed God and the king. And the text wants to heighten just how heinous this crime was, just how heinous this conspiracy was. You know, first, you know, on the, the one hand, we see just the innocence of Naboth, that Naboth did absolutely nothing wrong. And not only that, but he's shown as this upstanding character. He's faithful to God. There's also just the, the spinelessness of Ahab that, you know, Ahab, in a, in a sense, is not even willing to get his hands dirty, but he, you know, lets his wife and his, uh, you know, those below him kind of take matters out of his hands. We see that there's this conspiracy that it's not just Ahab plotting, but it's Ahab, it's his wife, and it even goes beyond that. It, it shows that all the elders and all the rulers of the city are all conspiring together to make this plot go about. You know, Naboth was accused of breaking the third commandment, right, that you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But in their plot, Ahab and his posse, they not only broke the third commandment by you know, setting this, this mockery of a, of a fast and dishonoring God's name, they break the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. They break the eighth commandment by stealing Naboth's land. They break the ninth commandment by bearing false witness against him. And they break the tenth commandment in Ahab's coveting of the property in the first place. And so, you know, as Naboth is sentenced, he's taken out of the city, he's killed. And the text is trying to show us that this is as wicked of a scheme as anyone could conceive of. And this, you know, uh, this act we see is it's adding sin upon sin to a king who, if you've read the story up to this point, he's not, you know, known for his good or his upstanding reputation. He's already known as the worst king of Israel at this point, and this is just a final terrible act that really highlights him as the worst king of all time. We have this, uh, you know, just as a people, as we read stories like this, as we see of, you know, injustice in our world, I think, you know, we often have this instinctual reaction, you know, that Something is not right here, that something needs to be done. And, um, you know, we demand justice. And, you know, even in our culture, I think our media can, can play into that. You know, I remember a few years ago, there was the, uh, that, or the documentary Making a Murderer. There was the podcast Serial. You know, these, these, uh, these medias that, you know, feed on our desire to see wrongs righted, to see people um, who are unjustly sentenced or unjustly accused of something, you know, for them to be, uh, to be that, that, for that to be made right. And so as we hear about Naboth's cruel death, as we see his blood spilled outside of the city walls, our natural response when we see something like this is to, to want to see that wrong righted. We want to see those responsible brought to justice. You know, and thankfully, unlike uh, many of our uh, movies and TV shows, you know, we're not left on this cliffhanger, but the, the justice that we're seeking comes immediately in the next section of the story. So I want to see that in our second point this, mor- uh, this morning as we look at justice pronounced. So uh, right after Ahab or Naboth is killed, you know, previously uh, we saw that Ahab, when something didn't go his way, he's, you know, he's vexed and he's sullen and he cries. But, you know, after a man has been murdered under his watch, 
he shows absolutely no remorse, not even a feigned remorse, but it, the text says that he immediately goes down to claim his prize. And so Ahab, he goes to claim his newly won property, and it seems in our text like he's literally just gotten away with murder. He goes down to the vineyard and he begins to work on this new royal garden. And then immediately after, uh, another character shows up, Elijah the Tishbite, who at God's command goes down to Ahab, he goes down to the vineyard, and he goes to confront Ahab at the very scene of the crime. And so, you know, uh, if, if you're familiar with the story at all, you know that there's, uh, there's been some tension between Elijah and between Ahab previously. Um, it's going to continue after this. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the show The Office, you could say that, uh, that Elijah is like the Toby Flunderson to Ahab's Michael Scott, right? He's always a downer. He's always ruining Ahab's fun. And the reason for this constant butting of heads, this constant conflict between the two is that Elijah, we see as God's prophet, was his messenger. He was his spokesperson during this time. And time and time again, as these two interact, Ahab is always on the wrong side of God's plan. And while, you know, it seemed for a few verses here for a little while that Ahab was going to get away with his plot, that he was going to get everything that he wanted, uh, we see here in this encounter between him and Elijah that God knows, you know, that Ahab has done what he has done. But not only that, but God wants Ahab to know that he knows. He wants Ahab to know that he's not going to get away with this plan. And so God's word of reckoning comes to Ahab, this prophetic word that Ahab and his family, his whole line is uh, going to be destroyed, and it comes through to, God, or to him from God through the mouth of Elijah. You know, we might be uh, uh, tempted to think, as we, read, as we read the story, that Ahab is just this you know, useful idiot on the part of Jezebel, that Jezebel's really the one pulling the, the, uh, pulling the strings. Um, but God's word here makes it clear that Ahab is the one who is to be held responsible, that Ahab, as the king of Israel, as the one who let this all happen under his watch, that the buck really stopped with him. And God says, have you killed and have you also taken possession? And so God, after accusing him of this, saying that I know, know what you did, God pronounces this divine death sentence on Ahab. And he prophesies not only that Ahab is going to die for his sins, but that his royal line is going to be cut off forever. And we've seen this before, just as God has done twice already with different northern kingdoms, you know, they'll, uh, they'll go on for two, three, four generations, but they'll continue to get more and more wicked to, to the point where God finally says enough is enough, and he cuts off their line and begins with another. And so he announces that your line is going to end, that you are no longer going to be king, you will be killed. And then this, uh, this prophetic word ends with this, you know, poetic uh, statement of the manner in which Ahab's going to die, this kind of poetic justice where he says, uh, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. You know, one important uh, truth that we see in this encounter with Elijah, it's this reminder that while evil and injustice often, you know, uh, goes unnoticed, often goes unhidden or, or hidden or unpunished, that God knows and God sees injustice. And God, as we see in this text, God will respond to it. You know, this event, although it was done with, you know, plotting and secrecy, it was done behind closed doors, it's not hidden at all from God's eyes. God saw the whole thing. He knew exactly what happened, and he knew who was to blame. This truth that God is a God of justice, that he doesn't just turn a blind eye towards the evils of this world. And, you know, that truth, it's, it's a comfort to us, to, to us as believers, that we can know that, you know, many times as, you know, in, in our own lives and in, in the world around us, that, you know, justice doesn't come swiftly sometimes. Sometimes we long for justice. We know that there is a God who sees and a God who will make all things right. 
You know, and we pray even in our own day, we pray for political and judicial leaders, for law enforcement to uphold justice in our lands. But, you know, we know that we're, we're in a fallen world and, you know, complete justice will not be realized until Christ's return. And so it makes us long for this day of judgment, long, long for this time when all things will be made right, when justice will finally be served. And yet, you know, for those outside of Christ, this is a truth that, that is, or at least it should be, something that is, you know, a terrifying, a sobering reality that, you know, all things one day will be brought to light, that all things will be made known, that while God is patient, that God doesn't enact swift justice immediately in all situations, that there is this day of reckoning coming, that, you know, all men will be held to an account, a day when not only the sins that are done out in public, but the sins that are done in secret will be revealed and will be brought to light, when every injustice will be avenged, every wrong made right. And so we see, you know, not only is this a, a prophetic word to Ahab uh, and to his descendants, but it's this broader, you know, we see this kind of picture of God's pr- uh, pronouncement of final justice, of final and ultimate justice, that, you know, everything one day will be made right. God sees all the events of this world and he will make all things right. And so we see as in this conversation between the two of them, Elijah, well, more this, this proclamation, uh, Elijah delivers this pronouncement of God's judgment upon Ahab. And then he just leaves, and it appears at this point, you know, after this final word, this kind of uh, ultimate declarative word that you are going to die, it seems like the story has been resolved, that you know, justice has been done, that Ahab's sin has been brought to the light and his fate has been sealed. But our text, you know, just like a, a good murder mystery that you would watch, that there's this third act with a twist in it, and we have the same thing this morning, that it doesn't end with this declaration of judgment. So I want to look at that in our final point this morning, justice postponed. So we see after this conversation between the two of them, after this encounter, there's this uh, break in the narrative. If you, uh, are, if you have your Bibles open, you'll note in 25 probably there's this section. Some ver- uh, versions even have it you know, pr- in parentheses as this little, little aside from the author. And he says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom his wife Jezebel incited. And so it's almost as if the author wants to stress, you know, if you haven't gotten the points you know, this far, if you haven't gotten what I'm trying to say, I want, you to, I want it to be clear, Ahab is the worst person you can possibly conceive of. He was the worst king in all of Israel. And this event that just happened highlights that, that he is the worst king that you've ever seen. But then, you know, after this statement, this summary statement, just to emphasize what we've already seen, something surprising happens. Something surprising uh, happens in the life of Ahab, someone who you wouldn't expect it from, he it, it, the text seems to say he shows sorrow for his sins. He shows repentance. You know, Ahab up until this point, you know, we, we know that he's, uh, he's prone to fits of emotion. So maybe like me, you, as you read this, you're compelled to ask the question, maybe this is just him getting emotional. Maybe this isn't sincere. Maybe it's just Ahab, you know, being vexed and sullen again. But the text seems to indicate that this is a true repentance. It uses language that we see elsewhere when people truly repent of their sins. That, you know, the text says that, uh, Ahab humbled himself before the Lord. And this is just a common Old Testament phrase to say that someone truly uh, repented and turned to the Lord. We also see him uh, repenting in sackcloth and ashes. This might you know, remind you of, uh, for example, in Jonah, when Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. He says, you know, yet in 40 days and this city will be destroyed. This pronouncement of judgment comes to Nineveh. And then the people, it says the exact same things, uh, thing. They humbled themselves. They put on sackcloth and ashes. And then God relented. And even uh, God's own response seems to show the genuineness of Ahab's repentance. 
You know, we know God, he's omniscient. He's not surprised by any means by this act or this, um, this turning on Ahab's part. But, you know, the text seems to highlight that this is an unexpected turn of events to the point where God himself remarks to Elijah. He goes to Elijah and he says, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And then God relents of the judgment that he has pronounced upon Ahab. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, just as, as people, we often have this, uh, this impulse towards justice, toward, towards see, seeing wrongs righted. And, you know, uh, you know in, in our, seeing the plot against Naboth this morning, you know, it's shocking to us. It was shocking just how heinous it was. But the most shocking thing we see in this whole story and what the author wants to emphasize is not, you know, the murder of Naboth. You know, it's not even the repentance of Ahab. The most unbelievable thing that happens in our story this morning is God's response to Ahab. And it says that God shows mercy on Ahab. You know, as, as a people, as people who demand justice, we're waiting for the hammer to fall, for Ahab to finally get what he des- deserves. And instead, the story just ends with God relenting, with God delaying Ahab's imminent punishment and sparing his life. And, you know, maybe this chafes our sense of right and wrong. And, and as we think about this story, uh, we might be, uh, uh, you know, thinking something like, sure, you know, God forgive sinners. We know that. We're Christians. But can he really forgive someone like Ahab? Can he really do that? And if, you know, if Ahab's repentance is genuine, if God really and truly does relent and really does show mercy, the question we might ask is, can God really save someone like Ahab? And I think if we're, if we're honest, at least if I'm honest with myself, as I read this story, I think and uh, I want to believe that I would act more like Naboth than I would Ahab in this story. That, you know, under the same pressure, under the same temptations, that I would not cave to the allure of money, that I would remain faithful to God's promises. But if Scripture has any indication, given the right circumstances, given the right uh, things around us, the right temptations, we would probably act more like Ahab than Naboth. You know, not trying to excuse or justify any of Ahab's actions or anything that he did, but, you know, if we had the right resources, the right connections, the right power over others, you know, the, we must at least ask the question, would we have come away sinless? You know, would we have been able to resist the underhanded ways of getting things that we want? If we had a Jezebel in our life, as the text says, this one to incite us to do evil, would we have come away unscathed to temptation? And so when we look at the life of Ahab, our inclination, while it you know, may be you know, something like, sure, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not as bad as Ahab, rather, what we ought to be saying as we look at this text, as we look at this sin of Ahab and this relenting on God's part, what we ought to say is, you know, at least by God's grace and, and gratefully, I have not gone, uh, gone as far down the path of sin as Ahab has. You know, apart from God's grace, we, we want to recognize, apart from God's patience in our lives, that we are all too in the same predicament as Ahab is. There's this, um, this story uh, told of an English reformer named John Bradford. He was this contemporary of uh, uh, Thomas Cramner, so he's a 16th century English reformer. And the story is told that I believe he's in London, and he's out, you know, back when uh, public hangings were a spectacle, things that people went to go see. He, would, he came out to this uh, execution, this hanging, and he sees the man brought, you know, through the courtyard, brought to the gallows. And as he's watching this man go up, about to be punished for a heinous sin, it says that John, John Bradford said this, or that John Bradford did this. He laid his hand to his breast and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, take away the grace of God and there goes John Bradford. 
or as you've probably more commonly heard it there, but for the grace of God go I. And so as we look at Ahab's sin, as we look at Ahab's life, we can say of ourselves there, but for the grace of God go I. It is only, Scripture tells us, it is only by God's grace and putting to death in us the old man and uh, causing us to die to our sin and giving us new life is only by that that God preserves us, that God saves us, so that we don't go down the same path that Ahab did. And you know, maybe on the flip side, for some of us, as we feel and uh, you know feel the the weight and the sin and the guilt or uh, of our past sins and past failures, you know, we can rest assured that no matter what we've done, we can be assured that God's grace does truly extend further. And so that question bears repeating: Can God save someone as sinful and as terrible and wicked as Ahab? If you don't take my word for it, I think the Apostle Paul has some helpful things to say. You know, as he reflects on his own life and his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, you know, he kind of gives this, this grand statement of the Christian life. He says this in 1 Timothy 1, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so, you know, this is, this is the gospel. This is the good news that we proclaim that God came into the world to save sinners. And I don't know if, you know, as, you, as you've read through the Old uh, and New Testaments, as you read the, the narrative of Scripture, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are quite a few sinners in that narrative. And you think of someone like Moses who kills an Egyptian. We think of someone like David who has Uriah the Hittite murdered. And, you know, Paul himself, if, uh, if he's not a murderer, at least he was complicit in the murder of innocent people. And yet Paul can say, you know, as the chief of sinners that God has shown grace on me. And this you know, admission that he's the chief of sinners, he's the foremost of sinners, it's not this false humility talking, but it is this universal statement, that this thing, this thing that all Christians can say. It's this paradigm, if you will, for the Christian life. You know, in, in other words, as we uh, reflect on our lives, as we alone know the depths of our sin, as we alone know the, the shortcomings that we have before a holy God, and as we rely on his grace, we can all say, of ourselves, I am the chief of sinners, and God has shown grace on me. You know, maybe uh, we can think about it by asking the question this way, what makes you or me different from an unbeliever? Is it anything we've done? Is there anything intrinsically different about us that distinguishes us? You know, I think especially as Reformed people, we know that um, you know, we can't answer that in the affirmative, that there's nothing that distinguishes us, but we can say, just like Paul, that what distinguishes us from those who aren't saved is that God has shown grace on us. As one pastor summarizes the message of the gospel, as he kind of uh, puts it in different terms, he says this, that the gospel is this, we are more sinful and more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. And so again, considering you know, our story, reflecting on it this morning, maybe as we're reading it, it brought to mind another story. You know, just consider the details for a moment. We have an innocent man. He's faithful to God, faithful to his promises. We have jealous and corrupt rulers. We see this kangaroo court that comes out to execute him. And we see false witnesses paid to give false testimony, to accuse him of blasphemy. And then finally, we see him taken outside of the city walls and killed. If you want to see the epitome of injustice in our world, then we need to look no further than the cross of Christ. 
It is, the, it is the most unjust act in all of human history. You know, the only person, you know, Naboth, certainly he was faithful, but he wasn't sinless. But the only person in all of history who did not deserve to be condemned for his sins is put to death. And not only that, but he's put to death uh, and killed by the hands of wicked men. And yet, even in this most unjust act, God turns this evil event into uh, an act of, uh, into the act of righteousness and justification for all who would put their faith and trust in Christ. This, this act of injustice on a cosmic scale, God turns into an act of justification and righteousness for sinners. And as we re- read uh, in the book of Acts, you know, as this message goes out uh, to, the, to the world, you know, first in Judea and then Samaria to the ends of the earth, we see that this very message is extended to those who were responsible for Christ's death. You know, uh, Peter in, in Acts 3, he goes to the very people who accused and condemned Jesus, the religious leaders, and Peter says this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. And this is, you know, more broadly, this is the clear message of the gospel, that Christ came and Christ died for his enemies, and that those deserving of judgment, those deserving of punishment, only receive God's grace. God shows his love for us, as we see in Romans uh, 5, you know, that in that while we were enemies of God, that while we were under the just punishment for our sins, that God sent his son to die for us, turning us from enemies, from those who were hostile and in rebellion against God to his beloved children. And, you know, we think of the inheritance that Naboth was trying to be faithful to, this, this promise of God, you know, to, to give him a land, to give his people a land. You know, we think of the inheritance that Christ was willing to die for. What was that? You know, it wasn't this small little plot of land in Jezreel, it wasn't a, a vineyard, but the inheritance that Christ was promised, the inheritance to which Christ remained faithful even unto death, was for sinners like you and I. That, you know, apart from anything we've done, apart from anything that we've earned, in spite of our sin, in spite of our hostility, Christ suffered on our behalf so that he might win a people to himself. And so this morning, may we look to Jesus, look to that one who was faithful unto death on our behalf, the one who the author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, which includes you and I, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so this morning as we close, may we trust that God is a God who forgives sinners just like you and I, and that we have a message to proclaim to the world that God is a God who is gracious to sinners. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the love and the grace that you have shown us in your beloved Son. We thank you that you have transferred us, Lord, from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, that you have dealt with our sins once and for all, that you have dealt justice upon them, and that you have made rebels into your children. Lord, I ask that this day and going forward that you would continue to guard and strengthen our faith by that same grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.